Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen, at snc.tv and local now, channel 525. Welcome to another episode of the Michelle Tafoya podcast. So much going on at the border where China is concerned, where Iran is concerned. I don't bring these up to make you more anxious. I bring these up to inform you and to hopefully get you to be aware and engaged and talk about awareness and engagement. Morgan Ortegas, who is an expert in all things foreign relations, joins us next. Welcome to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. The name Morgan Ortegas may be familiar to you. You may have seen her on a number of television shows. Uh, she's the founder of Polaris National Security, former spokesperson for the United States State Department, a seasoned business executive, a U.S. Naval Reserve officer, former intelligence analyst, and as I said, frequent host and television guest, Morgan Ortegas. We're going to talk China. We're going to talk Iran. There was some news about Iran that you should know about. Uh, we'll talk about the border. So much to get to and the perfect guest. So stick around. You will find her engaging and most importantly, informative. This is stuff we got to know. So stick around. Now, are you one of the millions of Americans, whether you're male or female, you're dealing with premature hair thinning or hair loss, or maybe you're ex a little afraid because it runs in the family and you might inherit that gene? Well, finally, there's a real solution that delivers on its promise without the harsh chemicals, without the side effects, without the disgusting smell. Thanks to our friends that develop Genucel skincare, which you know I'm a huge fan of, Provia uses a safe natural ingredient. It's pro Procapil. I always want to say Provia Procapil. It's Procapil to effectively target the three main causes of premature hair thinning and loss by supporting healthy scalp circulation, the delivery of nourishing nutrients, and healthy hair follicle anchoring to your scalp. Provia guarantees more hair on your head than in the drain or your comb. Effective for men and women of any age, safe on colored hair, safe on treated hair, safe on styled hair. It's that easy. And right now, new customers save over 50% off Provia's introductory package at proviahair.com slash Michelle. It's P-R-O-V-I-A hair, H-A-I-R.com slash Michelle. Every package includes a full 60-day supply of Provia serum, for daily use, plus Provia 30, super concentrate for faster, more noticeable results. Provia works. Guaranteed or 100% of your money back. See results for yourself right now. Don't wait. Go to ProviaHair.com slash Michelle. ProviaHair.com slash Michelle with one L, please. That's ProviaHair.com slash M-I-C-H-E-L-E. -E. Coming up, Morgan Ortegas on what's going on at the border, our relationship with China, and some breaking news on Iran that should really make you wake up. That's next. Morgan Ortegas, it's great to have you. We've sort of passed like ships over at yeah. Fox News Channel on Gutfeld and all the and outnumbered and so forth. So this is a fun, a fun treat to have you with us. Um, someone from your company emailed me this article this morning 
that mm-hmm. is fairly mind blowing about Iran. And I, I'd love it if you could, because you can do this better than I can, give us your summary of what you read this morning that really fired you up, obviously, and why you're so concerned about it. Yeah, so this is breaking news this morning. Um, was certainly not something that I, I expected to deal with today. And, and I'll explain to you, it's a little bit of a complicated story, but I'll explain to you and your listeners uh, why I think that this is so important for everybody to know. Essentially, so there's a news news organization called Semaphore and then another one called Iran International that were able to obtain emails uh, between Americans. And some of these were former uh, Obama administration officials. Uh, some are current uh, and currently in government in the Biden administration. And some of them uh, will advise the Biden administration or are deeply involved in discussions, even if they don't have official roles. Essentially, Michelle, what these emails said uh, from the Iranian government is that they instituted around 2014 a foreign influence campaign into the United States. And this foreign influence campaign uh, was focused on trying to shape uh, the public discourse around uh, Iran and especially trying to shape the public discourse around uh, the centrifuges uh, and and the the nuclear discussion. Because you remember at the time in the Obama administration, they were getting ready to enter these negotiations into the JCPOA, uh, which was the Iran nuclear agreement. This is the agreement that President Trump very famously tore up whenever he came into office. Office, um, because we didn't think we, uh, based off the structure and the written words in the deal, uh, that it actually prevented Iran from getting a nuclear weapon. So, in foreign policy circles in the United States, this was hugely controversial. Uh, this deal, and now what we're reading from some before, from again a very legitimate mainstream news outlet. Uh, is that these officials uh, from from former Obama administration and from current Biden team and people associated with them were on a list that the Iranian regime is targeting to use them as foreign influence agents. So it was writing op-eds and contributing to the public discourse. It gets even worse, Michelle. Uh, also, there has been at least two people so far, and I'm continuing to dig, but at, at least two people, there were messages, emails uh, that they wrote to the foreign minister of Iran, uh, Zarif, or wrote to senior advisors to the foreign minister. And these emails uh, basically talked about what these individuals were doing, again, to change the public discourse in the United States. And one of them uh, even talked about how he was, you know, pledged loyalty to Iran because he was an Iranian-American. So what I've called for today uh, to sum it all up is an immediate congressional and maybe even law enforcement investigation into how far this Iranian influence, this foreign influence campaign, how deep did it get into American officials? What did these American officials get in, in exchange for it? And more importantly, how do the people who were involved, who were named in these emails by Iran, how do they currently have positions of power and security clearances? I think that this is a question that every American should want to know, and that it's very fair to ask. You know, I, I was reading this piece that that you guys sent me, and one of the top aides, uh, Robert Malley, uh, was yes. placed on leave in June, just this past June, following the suspension of his security clearance, and yet he's popped up on the lecturer faculty administration list at Princeton. And one Princeton alum wrote to the newspaper, the Princeton uh, school newspaper, how is this possible? The guy who's under investigation by the FBI, among other places, and had his security clearance taken away or suspended, 
is being hired to speak at Princeton, to teach at Princeton. Who is this Robert Malley character? And, and we, we this was really quiet, by the way, I, I, at least in bigger circles. You probably yeah. knew that his yeah. his security clearance had been suspended. But why? And why is he just out there now in a university? You know, it, I've been screaming about it. It's been hard to get mainstream media coverage of this. So Rob Malley was who Biden and Secretary Blinken, the Secretary of State, chose to be their Iran envoy. He came with uh, in, in, enormously controversial, right, over the interviews and his associations over the years. His, you know, really it felt like shilling for the Iranian regime. Uh, uh, this was just an incredibly uh, controversial choice to begin with. Uh, now what it looks like, and, and I will say, I will use Chairman Mike McCall, um, who is the chairman of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Uh, he did an interview with me actually on News Nation, and he said that Rob Malley's actions were treasonous. Now, what does that mean? I don't know, because the committee um, and the State Department have not released what Rob Malley did. But Mike McCall is not a flamethrower. Mike McCall is a very, a very seasoned, uh, long term congressman from Texas, very well respected chair of House Foreign Affairs. And he wouldn't use the words traitorous or treasonous uh, without some real meat behind them. It's also important to note that the State Department did not admit any of this to Congress. I believe Congress found out through media reporting right. that his clearance had been revoked. So for months, uh, he was operating at the State Department without a security clearance. They did not inform Congress. And even then, they, the White House has said, oh, this is a private matter. Listen, it's it's not a private matter whenever administration officials are being accused of being of being foreign influence agents for, by the way, I would remind the audience, this is not just an enemy of the United States. It, Iran is an enemy of the United States. They threaten to wipe out the state of Israel all the time. They're trying to get a nuclear weapon. We have not been able to contain that. They are also as certified by multiple Republican and Democratic administrations, the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism. Right. Oh, and by the way, after all of this that we just talked about, don't forget, last week, Biden and Blinken gave Iran $6 billion to get yeah. five American hostages back. $6 yeah. billion. We, we swapped five for five hostages or what prisoners, whatever you want to call them. But on yeah. top of that, released $6 billion of frozen uh, assets or frozen money, money that was frozen that is not... Yeah quote unquote, taxpayer dollars. But, you know, th this is what, what just grabbed me about that, Morgan, was how they went on and on about how this money can only be spent for humanitarian uh, reasons, you know, medications, food, all of that for the people. You know, that's like saying, you know, we're going to donate money to Planned Parenthood, but it is not allowed to be used on abortions. Money sure. is fungible. Money exactly. is fungible. So when you give someone $6 billion to use in whatever capacity, that frees up $6 billion somewhere else to use in another capacity. What, yes. what are they hiding? The administration. I, uh, listen, it is the extent that they have gone to to protect Rob Malley. Um, and by the way, some media outlets are reporting it, but but as you just said, so much of the uh, of, of regular mainstream media, legacy media, doesn't report this stuff. I mean, the, I, I doubt the average American knows this. Right. Um, and, and so I, I think they fundamentally are furious with President Trump and Mike Pompeo and others for tearing up the JCPOA. They felt like they were going to solve peace in the Middle East with this deal, that they were going to actually contain Iran. Well, we took that and we put that on its head. Right. We're the ones who got four peace deals. But 
between Israel and Arab states, the first mm -hmm. peace deals in 26 years, because we rejected their flawed Middle East policy. I think their policy towards Iran is dangerous. It makes the Middle East less safe. It makes the world less safe. And now members of Congress have every right and law enforcement officials. I think this goes beyond Congress. I think law enforcement should be investigating uh, how deep, how pernicious uh, did the Iranian uh, foreign agent, foreign influence campaign go? And how do all these people have security clearances? How are they getting into the White House for meetings? It's mind boggling to me. It is to me as well. And it, it, it brings up kind of this bigger macro picture to me. Um, you know, we like to believe that our that our leaders, that the White House, that the president, that the State Department are all protecting America, have America's best interests. And I'm not just talking about people, but the ideals of America, what what yeah. we're founded on, you know, and liberty, freedom and domestic tranquility, if you will, keeping outsiders outside the malicious ones. And so it leads me to wonder who the hell is making such decisions if it's the president, you could say, well, clearly he, he don't know what he's doing. So he's just making, but I don't believe it's the president. Whom do you believe is behind some of this, this stuff that's going on that seems to be putting us more at risk than protecting us? It doesn't seem like it's the vice president either. Right. Um, so I think there's a, you know, there's been reporting um, that President uh, Obama, uh, which he still has a house in D.C., that he entertains uh, many administration officials at his home. Um, I, I don't I doubt, you know, there's one person. I think that there's a lot of people that are a part of the decision making process, including, you know, the national security advisor, the secretary of state, um, the secretary of defense may not have as much influence as uh, as the others certainly the White House chief of staff um, and others, but it is a, you know, it, it is at best, as their policy as it relates towards Iran, uh, a, a fundamentally flawed way to look at the Middle East. They really genuinely believe, Michelle, uh, that the Iranians were going to follow uh, the letter of the agreement. They were not going to get a nuclear weapon, which made no sense because there were sunset provisions uh, in that nuclear agreement, Michelle, that said basically, okay, was Iran going to get a nuclear weapon within the next few years? No, but 10 to 15 down, years down the road, the sunset provisions would be intact and the Iranians would be able to get a nuclear weapon then. So only only in uh, like the current state of politics do we live in, do people think this is an amazing deal because we just kicked the can down the road 15 years for someone else to deal with. We call that in my school of foreign policy a bad deal. I understand current events, but I, I like to get to the root of why this relationship is so strong between Israel and the United States. Why is it so strong? It, it, it's a very good question. You know, this year we celebrate 75 years of Israel's independence. We're a very young country, but we also celebrate 75 years of U.S.-Israel relations. And the interesting thing is that when, you know, when our forefather, our first prime minister, David Ben-Gurion, declared Israel's independence in 1948, the United States under President Truman was the first country in the world to recognize Israel. And it took President Truman only 11 minutes to sign his letter of recognition after our declaration of independence. So it started very well, I think. But it's more, much more than that, of course. I think that at the very basic level, it's just that our countries share the same values of, 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 of democracy, freedom, and liberty. Israel is still 
the really the only democracy in the region in, in in the Middle East and this is something that I think many Americans not only politicians but also many American people um, value and there are many other reasons uh, there are strategic issues that connect us together again being a democracy in the Middle East really I think serve American interests mm-hmm. uh, we have also a people-to-people relations that are super strong on the academia, on commerce, tourism. And I have to say, there's a very big and, and, and important Jewish community in the United States that is an important bridge between our countries. I mean, Israel has the biggest Jewish community in the world, but the second biggest one is here in the United States. Mm-hmm. I, it's interesting that you call, you, know, you call that moment in 1948 a declaration of independence, so why wouldn't the United States support that? You know, it's a, and it's a a democracy um, in the way that, like you said, we don't see in other countries in the Middle East. Um, there are people in our politics here in the United States, as you well know, some in your jurisdiction, in your the area that you serve, who are pro-Palestinian and who really, um, I, I, I don't know quite what the word is. Is it anti-Semitic? Is it anti-Israel? I'm not sure. But there are, you know, there are some voices out there. And like I said, some of them are in the United States Congress. How do you deal with that? How do you, how do you manage those perceptions as compared to what you, you like this relationship to, to, to remain in the United States? Right. Thank you for this question. I have, you know, I, I really want to say something before I answer your question, because yes. Being pro-Palestinian does not necessarily exclude the fact that you're also pro-Israeli. It's not a zero-sum game, you know. Okay. Um, we have many friends here in the United States who are also pro-Palestinian and are wishing to see peace between Israel and, and, and the Palestinians, which this is something I share too, of course. So um, just the mere fact that you're pro-Palestinian does not mean that you're pro-Israel. Um, I think you referred to a certain group of Also politicians, maybe some you know civil society organizations that say that they are pro-Palestinian, but actually I feel that they're mainly anti-Israeli. Where the sentiment come, comes from, you know, I do not know. Um, and I want to say it is, it is very legitimate. It is very legitimate to, to, to criticize Israel, for example. It's very legitimate not to... Uh, subscribe to certain politics of Israel or of the United States or of France or Canada. I mean, this is totally leg- legitimate. What bothers me about certain... It's a very small group, I would say. Uh, the more radical one is that it's not about the policies of Israel, but I would say that it is rather about, I would say, the existence of Israel as it is now, as mm-hmm. a national... Uh, state of the Jewish people as the homeland of the Jewish people and this is something that I I really cannot accept because nobody questions the existence of France as a homeland of the French people nobody questions uh, um, Brazil being the homeland of Brazilians etc etc and when Israel is The only Jewish state in the world is singled out in this context. This is something that really bothers me. I would imagine. I would imagine. And it bothers me 
when I hear, you know, because Israel is an ally, a friend to the United right. States, it bothers me when some of our representatives speak about Israel in such a negative way. And um, so that 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 concerns me. They are definitely in the minority, I would suggest. But uh, we do know that during the Trump administration, a lot of changes happened. Um, first of all, the, the movement of the U.S. embassy. Right. Uh, why was that so significant for Israel? You know, Jerusalem has been our historic capital for millennia, for thousands of years. Um, you know, for two, I don't want, let's not go into history, but just I do want to mention just one detail. You know, Jews have been in the diaspora all around the globe for more than 2000 years we have been able to reestablish, and I'm saying re, because we did have in the past a Jewish state in this region, to reestablish our homeland in Israel after 2,000 years. Jews today, every Jew, practically every Jew in every corner in the world is eligible today and is able today to become a citizen of Israel. This is something that did not exist just, you know, 75 years ago. Um, if we had in Israel eight years ago, the Holocaust might not have happened. If we had in Israel some centuries ago, many of the persecutions against Jews in Europe, in Arab countries, and elsewhere would not have happened. So um, this is something very significant. And for 2,000 years, Jews have longed to come back to Zion, to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been our holy uh, city for for for. for, for you know, for thousands of years. Mm -hmm. And now it is the capital of the modern state of Israel. Now, because of political issues, some of them are totally dis legitimate. We can discuss them. But because of political reasons, many countries did not recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. And I think the great thing about what the United States did three years ago is not only did they recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, but they also they, they also gave... Um, um, a, I would say a political embodiment to this recognition by moving the embassy to Jerusalem. So this is—it was something very, very significant to us. But I want to say, with your permission, Michelle, one more thing, if I may. Yes, of course. One of the most important pillars in our policy with the United States, because it is such an important ally, is bipartisanship. Mm. Our relations are not do not have any any partisan tint, any partisan color. We work very hard to maintain the relations bipartisan. So we try to work very closely, both with the Democrats and with the Republicans. I, I understand, and I, and I get what you're implying there. And so, but it is interesting how, and you have said it is for political reasons that some people did not want to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Can you touch on maybe the top couple of reasons why that was? I can I can understand some of the reasons, even though I have counter arguments. You know, some said we should we should change you know the status of our recognition in Jerusalem only when there's a, a final agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. Okay. Why I can understand this argument, I do not agree with that because what you're doing basically by saying that is giving the Palestinians a veto power over our bilateral relations over the relations between Israel and the United States. And this is not a positive thing because it gives them a leverage to continue refusing, 
you know, recognize Israel as a Jewish state and, you know, moving forward to, 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 to a peace agreement. Um, but I would also say that on the extreme edge of those who oppose to that, again, stands the basic, the basic refusal to recognize Israel as, as the homeland of the Jewish people. And that is, for me, again, singling out Israel, comparing to other countries, singling out. And that is, I don't want to say that it's anti-Semitic, but it is, it is, it is a strong flirt with anti-Semitism. A strong flirt. Okay. Yeah. All right. Uh, yeah, it's, um, this is all fascinating. I'm learning so much, and I thank you for that. This, this lack of peace between is Israel and the Palestinians um, has, you know, it's gone on through my entire life. It's all that I know of that region is there is no peace there. How close were you getting with the Abraham Accords? And, and the Abraham Accords, of course, uh, normalize some relations there. If you want to detail how those impacted things in Israel and, and just was that a sign that things were inching closer to peace in the region. Absolutely. You know, we are celebrating now two and a half years to the signing of the Abraham Accords. The Abraham Accords basically are the biggest, I would say, biggest accomplishment for peace in the Middle East in the last 30 years. Um, you know, it, it included not just normalization, but full relations between Israel and, and, and important Arab countries, uh, Uni the United Arab Emirates, Morocco, Bahrain, to some extent Sudan, um, it was signed during the Trump administration, but the great thing is that it is a totally bipartisan issue. And President Biden right now is working very hard, his administration, with a big support from Congress, from both sides of the aisle in the Congress, something that doesn't happen so often mm -hmm. in today's uh, um, political environment in this country, um, to, to enhance the circle of peace in the Middle East, to enhance the Abraham Accords. There is a major focus now on the biggest and probably the most important Arab country, that is Saudi Arabia. Your national security advisor, Mr. Sullivan, was you know, visiting Riyadh just two weeks ago with a, 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 you know, strong intent to bring peace, normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. That would be something very, very big because Saudi Arabia being such an important leader in the Arab world, peace with Saudi Arabia would necessarily bring more Arab countries into, into the table, which is a great thing. Right. But I think that the, one of the most important things about the Abraham Accords is that they broke the, as you mentioned, the decades of veto power that the Palestinians had, uh, had over the possibility that Israel would have peace with the Arab world because they said, first we and then the rest of the Arab world. Uh -huh. And, you know, many Arab countries subscribe to that for political reasons. And then at a certain point, moderate Arab countries like the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco said, you know, we have so many interests. We want to make peace with Israel. It serves our people. So we're not going to wait for the Palestinians to decide whether they want to make peace with Israel or not. And let me tell you one more thing. I, you know, before arriving in Chicago, I worked as, I, as a policy advisor to Israel's uh, foreign minister now ex-foreign minister, Mr. Gabi Ashkenazi, and I was there during the signing of the Abraham Accords. So I was very much involved in, in the process, and I can tell you that our expectations back then were very, very high because it, it, it was dramatic. Two and a half years later, today, I can tell you that 
it has gone way beyond our most positive expectations in terms of tourism, research and development that we do together um, on, on what the technologies, you know, uh, agricultural technologies, people-to-people initiative, um, strategic cooperation in a very unstable region that we live in, the Middle East, and, and so much more. And the United States is plays an amazing and a major role in bringing all these countries, I mean, Israel and the moderate Arab countries together. And I have to say, we're very, very thankful for that. I, in addition to being thankful, how hopeful are you that in your lifetime, you will see peace between the Palestinians and Israel? You know, as a father, I have three kids. They're teenagers already. Very rough period of time. Yeah. <laughs> As, as a father, I, I, I believe that it's not about whether I'm optimistic. I have to be optimistic. And as a policymaker, I have to make sure that I'm not just waiting, but we do everything we can to, to create more opportunities for, for resuming the negotiations and to finding solutions. Because, you know, in the end of the day, you know, we diplomats tend to, to speak about strategic ideas, strategic plans, strategic affairs. In the end of the day, it's about the people in the Middle East. It's about the Palestinian mother and the Palestinian child who live either in the West Bank or Gaza. And at the same time, it's about the Israeli mother and father and the Israeli uh, children who live in the south of Israel, for example, under constant threat of rockets that are being fired towards them from Gaza, the Gaza Strip. And we have, to, we have to do everything we can to break this cycle of violence. So I, it is... It is it is a war. It is. It's not just about the need to be optimistic. It is my work plan to be optimistic and to try to to find solutions. So yes, I hope that not only in my lifetime, but that during maybe not the next years, but in the next decade, we'll be able to find a solution with our neighbors, our our cousins, the Palestinians. Iran is a very. I say the word, and I. I get a little nervous on a number of levels. There's so much history. Um, there is, it, it, we think of Iran and we think of the axis of evil, as George Bush, George oh, yeah. W. Bush put it. We think of the, the nuclear program there. We think of the, the threats to take Israel off the planet and the death to America. Oh, yeah. And it's all quite overwhelming and anxiety-inducing. And there you are. They're your neighbor. That you know, they're they're a distance from us, um, but they're your neighbor. What? Where are we here? We're in 2023, almost halfway through the year. What? What kind of fear do they? Do they? Is it warranted that we all feel this way about Iran? Is it, is it, you know, we're so focused on things like now, like, like China and, and uh, Russia and Ukraine. And I think our, our attention span is short, right? And so everything that's happened in Iran and Iraq and, and Afghanistan is sort of like in the rearview mirror. I, I think we need to focus on it as well. What's your perspective on their position in the world and the threat that they pose? All right, thank you. Major question, and yeah. <laughs> I want to your presentation um, because you mentioned that it was part of the um, axis of evil that it poses a major threat to Israel. 
But I think that today everybody understands that it's, it's much more than that. Let me explain. I have several concerns about Iran. First, their nuclear ambitions. I mean, already they are what we call a threshold country. It means that at any mo- a given moment, they are able to break through. You know, they have enough enriched uranium uh, that would be enough for one or potentially more atomic bombs. This is not a threat to Israel. It's a threat to the whole region. And this is, I think, part of the reason that many moderate Arab countries are looking to, to have more peace with Israel because we have common threats, that is Iran. Um, but it's not only threatening Israel and the Middle East, it thre- it's threatening also Europe because the Iranians are holding ballistic experiments of missiles that potentially can reach Europe, 2,000 kilometers. That's more than 1,000 uh, miles. That's not the distance to Israel. That's the distance to mainland Europe. So that's a major threat. And if they're not stopped, they will you know, continue to develop missiles that would one day reach the United States. Have no doubt about that. Now, so first is, is uh, their nuclear ambitions. Secondly is their malign activity all over the region. Because it's not only about Iran. You, as you well said, there are neighbors. So we don't have a direct border with Iran. But basically, we do have because they operate through proxies in every country that surrounds Israel, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Iraq, in, in, in Yemen. Uh, they threat Israel. They threat American interests in the region. You know, look at every country they have been, uh, uh, they have tried to, you know, to be present in. It's a failed country. Lebanon, failed country. Iraq, failed country. Syria, failed country. Yemen, failed country. And that is only because of the uh, Iranian intervention in these countries. So it poses a threat, a global threat, uh, a regional threat to the Middle East, but also now a global threat. And why? You mentioned Russia, Ukraine. Now, the Iranians now are the best allies of the Russians in their aggressions against the Ukraine. Why? Because they have been sending them missiles and drones, and the Russians are using the Iranian techniques and the drones and the missiles to attack civilian targets in the Ukraine. And this is the exact same methods that the Iranians have been using through their proxies to attack Israel. So what I'm trying to say, it's not our personal headache. It is, but it's also a big headache for the whole region in the Middle East, but also for American interest and European interest. And this is why this is a global uh, issue, and it should be addressed globally and not locally only by Israel. And I think the American administration understands that very well. We have very close and intimate discussion with the administration about, you know, possible, you know, solutions to, 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 to this issue. I think that we need to see a much more stronger uh, stance towards Iran on every possible um, front. And, you know, this is the only way to stop this threat. Do you, do you as much as you appreciate the American interests and the, the American support on this, um, and you mentioned, you touched on some of the other countries that, that and, and maybe the relationships strengthening because the threat is for many of you, but do you feel similar support from European nations, from Arab nations? I think, you know, in the past, it did not necessarily used to be the case. There has been attempts for, for, for years to go back to the, um, to the nuclear deal with Iran. And I, I would diplomatically say that according, at least to the information that I have, 
Very tangible concessions have been offered to the Iranians that were a source of great concern for us. But I think there is an understanding right now in Europe and in other capitals that it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. And the threat that Iran poses to not only Israel, again, it's to the free world is too big. And and this threat needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed globally on on the global level. Well, we all hope and pray that it is. Uh, right. for for everybody's sake yeah it would be nice if there were no evil in the world but unfortunately that is something that has existed from the dawn of time and will exist forevermore i and, agree and 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 we have to understand that you can't eradicate evil completely it will always pop up and so it's it's you a matter of against evil that's yeah. our job that's our role right we have to stand up against it it has been so good to have you on, you know, thank you so much for your time today. I, I hope we can do it again. There's so much to learn and I really appreciate you. I would love to. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Michelle Tafoya podcast. As always, be brave and do good. We'll see you next time.